Okay, well, we are ready to get started. Thank you for uh, coming to the session on markets for conservation and mitigation. And this, um, this session, of course, is about Chris and Buzz. Uh, both are um, prolific writers about the environment and natural resource topics, and I'll get to them in a minute. But I first wanted to talk briefly about two other prolific writers about uh, the environment and natural resources. The first is John Muir, and the second is Aldo Leopold. Both were adopted sons of Wisconsin, which is where I live and teach, and both migrated west, as adopted sons of Wisconsin often do. Um, both were ardent environmentalists. Eldo Leopold uh, returned from the west, where he became a faculty member at the University of Wisconsin. Um, but both were, both were environmentalists and uh, Leopold more of a scholar. Muir wrote that one touch of nature makes the whole world kin. And Aldo Leopold wrote of the fierce green eye that he saw in the wolf's eye. And so they had this shared love of nature, but they had very different ideas about how to achieve conservation. Uh, Muir very much focused on preservation via public ownership and regulation what I would call mandates. He advocated, of course, for Yosemite National Park. He founded the Sierra Club. And he thought of markets as primarily a threat to the environment, markets versus the environment. Leopold, by contrast, he advocated, at least later in his career, for market incentives to conserve natural biodiversity in particular, and particularly on private land. He wanted to use markets for the environment, and he felt like that would be effective. I think he also spent a lot of time with economists at the University of Wisconsin who thought such incentives were important. Um, I want to tee this off with a, a quote from Aldo Leopold that I think gets to some of the issues we'll discuss today. Leopold said, conservation will ultimately boil down to rewarding the private owner who conserves the public interest, private provision of public goods. And, and a way to elicit that could be through markets. Um, and so this session has, I think, two motivating questions. How well do voluntary environmental agreements perform compared to top-down government control mandates? And then what barriers prevent more widespread use of markets and which of these result uh, from government policy? And so to discuss these questions, as I promised, give a brief bio of these two guys. Chris Costello is a professor of environment and resource economics at UC Santa Barbara. He also directs the university's environmental markets lab. Um, he serves on boards for Environmental Defense Fund, Global Fishing Watch, and California's Council of Economic Advisors. Um, I, I've known Chris for oh, 20 years and have always admired his deep dive into research topics. I, I told him last night if Hunter S. Thompson was the gonzo journalist for spending time with Hell's Angels to, to write about them, then Chris is a gonzo economist. Um, for, for example, traveling with fishermen in the deep sea to understand their economic problems. Uh, Buzz Thompson is a professor of Stanford's Law School and here at the School of Sustainability. 
Um, he's a senior fellow and co-founder of Stanford's Woods Institute for the Environment. Um, Professor Thompson was also a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. Um, he's a global expert on natural resource issues and water. Um, I met Buzz maybe 20 years ago uh, at a conference about conservation easements, have kept in touch with him, and have since learned of our uh, shared love of both surfing and New Zealand. Mm -hmm. So welcome, welcome to both of you. And um, with that, what I want to do is ask you a series of questions. I have eight of them. Hopefully we'll, we'll get through most of them, hopefully all of them. And I projected them on the screen so you can, you can follow in the audience. Um, so the first thing I want to ask is, you know, so we can start concretely, um, and maybe I can even look at you. Um, can, can you give an example, can you each give an example of an environmental transaction or market? And if, if you're able, can you contrast it with a, what a corresponding mandate might look like? Mm. How about we start with you, Chris? Okay. Well, Nick, thanks for having me, and thanks for the kind introduction. I should take you to all my talks. Um, <laughs> and thanks to the audience for sticking around and coming back after, after lunch. So, Nick, I think there are actually, when you asked me this ahead of time, there are so many interesting you know, markets that are popping up in different parts of the, quote, environmental economy. So it's hard to pick one, but I'll pick one that maybe not that many people will be familiar with already. And it is a program uh, down where I live, which is in Santa Barbara, California, which is one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world. It also happens to be one of the richest um, biodiverse, biodiversity areas in the world in the, in the ocean right off the coast of Santa Barbara. Has all kinds of whales and dolphins and fish and other marine biodiversity. And you can imagine you got all these ships going through and there are often whale strikes. So ships you know, heading to the port of Los Angeles will actually hit a whale and kill it. And that happens frequently, even for endangered whales like the blue whales. So I think the regulatory solution to that would be, you know, go around the islands, don't go through this channel, or everybody has to slow down, something along those lines. And that's been tried, but with very little, um, you know, it hasn't, hasn't really worked. So recently, a really innovative market has emerged where uh, there's a voluntary payment for ships that's kind of announced in advance. It's about $2,500 per transit, per one-way transit through this channel. And you get paid this $2,500 if you voluntarily slow down. And there's been really enormous uptake of this voluntary payment uh, by shipping companies. And they get, you know, not only do they save money on fuel and reduce emissions from their smokestacks, but they don't kill whales and uh, they get the PR from it, and so this is actually seems to be seems to be pretty successful. Excellent, yeah. thank you, yeah. Buzz. Uh, so as Chris just said, it's it's difficult to limit yourself to one. So I'm actually going to give two uh, examples. Uh, the first one is a uh, domestic example. So in Colorado, like in much of the Western United States, we divert so much water from the rivers and streams that there's really not sufficient in-stream flow to support a lot of the native fish species, and the native fish species have been in decline. Mm -hmm. Now Colorado 
could have responded uh, to that uh, by reducing the amount of water that people could take out of rivers and streams, a purely regulatory approach. But instead, since the mid-2000s, Colorado has actually spent money going out buying water rights from farmers and ranchers and then putting them back into the rivers and streams to ensure adequate in-stream flow. And at this point, that market, that government-driven market, uh, has protected about a 1,000 miles of in-stream uh, river mileage uh, in uh, the state of Colorado. Uh, one of the great things about that particular market is that not only do you have the state of Colorado appropriating money to buy the in-stream flows. But in addition to that, you also have a variety of other groups, like the Colorado Water Trust, a 501c3 corporation, or the Nature Conservancy, who are going in and buying additional rights uh, to return them to the river. So you have this government market with a voluntary market on top of it. Mm -hmm. And then the second example, which probably most of you are already familiar with, is that for years, Costa Rica suffered uh, from severe deforestation. Uh, where they were losing uh, their native forests uh, at a rapid rate. So in Costa Rica, starting in 1996, they appropriated money to go out and begin to pay the owners of the land on which the forests were found to preserve those forests rather than cutting down the, uh, the trees. So again, a market driven by governmental payments in lieu of a regulatory uh, program. And in that particular example, Costa Rica has also taken advantage uh, of climate mitigation uh, programs uh, where they can get money in international climate markets for, again, preserving those trees. Mm -hmm. So how do we want to think about the benefits of markets? And you've hinted at some of these, um, but maybe, maybe a better question to ask then given that is how should we think about what is lost when you have you know, a willing seller, a willing buyer, and those markets don't occur? Chris. Yeah, you know, I think that there are a number of advantages. I think what you're getting at is sort of advantages of markets over regulatory approaches. And the most obvious one is the low, significant lowering of the cost of meeting any target. So you, you tell me an environmental target and a regulatory solution for reaching it, I'll tell you, I'll, you know, in theory, design a market that achieves the exact same target but at a, at a much lower cost. And that cost savings will vary depending on the circumstances, but maybe I'll have time later to talk about a case that I've studied with an, an, a couple of scholars that are also here in attendance where that cost could go down by as much as 90 or 95%. So it, it can go to almost zero by allowing trade. So that's, that's kind of the obvious one. But I think markets unleash a whole bunch of other possible uh, benefits. We heard from Matt Kahn about innovation, and others have spoken about that as well. That's a clear advantage of, of markets, in my opinion. Um, the possibility of redistributing wealth actually is, I think, an interesting one. When you design an environmental market, you have to allocate rights. And that allocation of rights 
is a way of, of redistributing wealth. And sometimes that can be used to achieve other kinds of social objectives. That's an advantage markets have over mandates. So I think there's a whole bunch of things like this. One that I wanted to conclude with is kind of the idea of what I call natural resource federalism. The idea that maybe the government doesn't know what every individual in society wants. Markets can allow that to be revealed. Mandates typically cannot. Yeah, I would just contrast the redistribution, redistribution, or not even the redistribution, the distribution of rights or ownerships as a potential durable way to address poverty rather than yeah. you know, periodic cash transfers exactly. for which there's yeah. a lot of rent seeking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Buzz, do you have a, a, a response to this question? How do we want to think about what's lost? Yeah, so, so I agree with everything that Chris just said. And, and just picking up on, on both of your, uh, your themes, you know, there are, are, are many environmental services uh, uh, in society uh, which are provided or can be provided by some of the poorest members of, um, uh, of society. So paying for those services can also be a way of actually providing money uh, to some uh, regions uh, that otherwise may be destitute. Uh, you know, in, uh, uh, in South America, there are a variety of, uh, uh, of water payments where there are cities that are now paying upstream watersheds uh, to protect those watersheds to ensure cleaner water and, uh, uh, and more stable water supplies. Uh, and that money goes to watersheds and to the residents of those areas that really have very little in the way of other economic opportunities. Uh, so I think that's a really important uh, point. I'll just add in two other things I think uh, environmental markets can do, though. Uh, the first thing is, you know, if you are an environmentalist uh, and you, for example, want more in-stream flow uh, in a river, um, you're not going to get it uh, if you try to regulate somebody. Right? I don't know. How many of you are farmers or ranchers or actually have a water right of your own? Okay, not very many of you. I can tell you if you were out there and I told you we were about to regulate your water right, uh, you know, you would be up in arms in a second. Uh, but the farmers love the program that Colorado has, which is actually going to reward them for taking their water and returning it to the stream uh, for the fish that are in the uh, stream. So markets are frequently politically much more feasible uh, than regulations are. And then a second thing which I think is, is really important is, is that regulation um, is going to provide the level of environmental protection of the mean voter, right? Of the average voter. Whatever that average voter wants in the way of environmental protection, that's what you're going to get through regulation. What markets do is they permit those people who maybe want greater environmental protection to be able to go out and acquire that additional environmental protection. So I'm a, I'm a trustee for the Nature Conservancy. I really want to see a lot more land conserved than we're going to get through regulation. The Nature Conservancy permits me to take my money um, and to invest it in a way that gets that for me. Could I pick up on that just real quickly? Go for it. People pro may or may not know, so land markets are a, a type of mm -hmm. environmental market. And we take it for granted because, you know, we all own property or, you know, you've, you know someone who owns property, it happens every day. 
the Nature Conservancy is one of the largest private landowners in the world right now. And that's because of the ability to go out and conserve by engaging in this market activity. That ability doesn't exist, for example, in the ocean. You can't, you can't go buy a marine reserve if you want to you know, declare a marine reserve off the coast of California. It's impossible to go do that because no one owns that property and there's no way to transact over it. So the kind of the underpinning or necessary condition for these kinds of environmental transactions to take place is the establishment of some property right that is allowed to be transferred. That's the case for water. That's the case for sh ship traffic. That's the case for land. That's not the case for ocean. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, I, and, and well, since you picked up on Buzz, I'm going to pick up on you. <laughs> I, I, for for this, these markets to create some source of income for poorer people, wherever they may be, um, a necessary condition for that to occur is the existence of property rights, yeah. some certainty. And so I'll come back to that later, but you know, it's hard to transact. Uh, to buy some environmental service from people in South America if they don't have clear title to the land. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I do think of this as a force, um, and I think a positive force uh, to, to, for property rights to evolve in some of these places um, yeah. where poverty is itself a result from the lack of property rights. Yeah. Although I actually, I want to pick up on, on, <laughs> on this to also emphasize a point that you made originally, Chris, which is markets can bring out real creativity. Uh, so the Nature Conservancy, for example, was really interested in establishing a marine reserve off of the uh, coast of uh, California. Chris has written about this. Uh, and you know the problem was they couldn't go out there and buy a portion of the coastal waters like they could land and say, you can't fish in this particular area. They tried to get the fishing communities voluntarily to create a, uh, a fishing reserve. They couldn't do that. So what the Nature Conservancy did was it went and it bought a portion of the fleet effectively. Uh, right? They bought a significant portion of the capacity of fishing off the coast. And then they said to all the other fishermen, if we close a portion of, uh, uh, of the coast, we will not fish. And basically, they traded their capacity for a fishing uh, reserve. Some of those we'll get back to uh, uh, later. It turns out sometimes it's very difficult to actually buy a water right in some states and put it back into a river. Mm -hmm. So what the Nature Conservancy is doing in some settings now is they just pay a fisherman not to use their water right. Exactly the same uh, result, but it gets around the legal barriers. So I'm amazed when you get nonprofits out there engaging in these types of market transactions, how creative they can be at getting around problems in the property rights and governmental rules. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to I ask a question about how we might measure the success or failure of an environmental transaction. And I think this relates to the problem of additionality or sometimes leakage. Somebody mentioned earlier, um, I think John Cochran, uh, you know, stacking of, of credits uh, where you have, you know, a carbon credit and a, deep, you know, various credits on the same piece of land. So, how do we want to measure the success of these transactions? Chris, can you take a crack at this? This is a really tough, tough question. I think you, first of all, you've got to make sure you ask the same question of the 
regulatory alternative. So if, if you're going to if you're going to hold markets to a standard of no of additional non-leakage, you've got to hold the regulatory alternative to the same standard. And I, I, I apologize for the jargon. I think yeah. maybe we should define additionality. So it's it's a term that if you know if a group or an organization is paying someone to not cut down trees, for example, to sequester carbon. Um, what would have what would the owner of the land done in the absence of payment and if the owner of the land would not have cut trees then the the agree, the agreement or the transaction has no additionality so that's that's a concept that, or a term that's used and then leakage is this idea that well if you know if my organization pays a landowner to refrain from cutting down trees are the trees just cut somewhere else and that would be a leakage so um, this is this is a question in these markets environmental markets you know how do we want to measure the success given these problems yeah yeah so okay so so point number one you got to hold any potential solution to those same that same standard it's not just a feature of markets point number two I think there are specific aspects of markets that can market design that can help limit the extent of these problems we can get into those design details later if you want to but I mean, I've thought a lot about like, what, how do you design the measurement, the market, the transaction, the allocation of rights to try to minimize those, those problems. Um, point number three, satellites help. Someone made the point earlier, maybe we, you know, that, that's something the federal government can do right, is give us information, and I agree with that. Um, there are some scholars in the audience that are real experts, I am not, but at you know, how do you harness what you can now learn in real time about natural resource use all over the world? How can you make use of that information stream to better design and monitor market transactions? And I'll, just to be blunt about it, and I'll make a, a claim that, like everybody else this morning, is unsubstantiated, but I think it's true. I think the, you know, sa satellites that we, access to information that we now have and that will surely improve in the next few years has enabled a type of environmental market to emerge across many, many sure. different kinds of resources that even five or 10 years ago we never thought yeah. could have been yeah. possible. Uh, I would buy that. I mean, any any contract to be enforced, you need to measure compliance, and that's helping. Buzz, do you have a, a response to this question about how you might measure success or failure? Yeah, although actually, first I want to again sort of build off of one of the things that, that Chris just said a moment ago. You know, because of, of the, the our ability now with satellites and various other types of uh, remote monitoring to know on a real-time basis what's happening, where are species uh, moving uh, over time, what's happening in various regions. We now can engage in much more dynamic conservation. Yeah. We can be changing our conservation measures on a daily or even hourly basis to adjust to what we know is happening, right? It's really difficult to develop a dynamic regulation. We simply can't change <laughs> regulations fast enough to keep up with the speed at which uh, we have information. 
uh, because every time we want to change a regulation, we have to stop, we have to go through a rulemaking proceeding, we have to have a hearing, we have to develop an environmental impact statement. It takes forever. Markets are really fast. And so by switching from a regulatory approach to a market approach, uh, we can actually engage in more dynamic conservation uh, that is possible given all of our scientific tools. Yeah. And in fact, maybe I'll just stop there. Yeah, oh, perfect, perfect. So I'm going to skip this question because I think we've more or less covered it. Where are environmental markets most and least active? I want to ask a, a, more, a, a more difficult question, I think. I want to think about what's prevented or enabled the development of markets. And I want to start by talking about maybe the elephant in the room. H how, do you, how do you finance? Let's talk about private financing, NGO or, or corp, you know, yeah. NGO financing of uh, conservation transactions. Of course, we know there's, uh, at least we hear, that there's big public good problems. So how am I going to raise money for the provision of environmental protection or uh, environmental quality when it has this public good characteristic. The rest of you could free ride on my provision if I pay Chris's organization to do this. So how in the world um, do we raise money and solve this uh, free rider problem to enable these markets to work? Chris. Nick, you're asking some, some good ones here. So okay, I'll start with the free rider problem, but I think there are other if I'm interpreting the question right, there are other impediments that can be overcome, and I could maybe address those quickly. You, you uh, can address whatever impediments you want. The next question is about government as an impediment. Okay, I'll, I'll, is, I'll leave that I think one. Is, Buzz can talk about that. I think it's separable <laughs> from um, the financing challenge. All right, so, so the free rider, everyone gets the free rider problem, right? It's like that Buzz is talking about the Nature Conservancy going out and buying land for biodiversity or buying water rights for in-stream flows. But where does the Nature Conservancy get its money? It gets its money from you know, the public donating to the Nature Conservancy. So there's a clear free rider problem. I don't have to donate to the Nature Conservancy because I get to benefit from all their great, great work without having to pay for it. So does, doesn't that mean, based on first principles from economics, that we're not getting enough in-stream flows provided by the Nature Conservancy? I think that's what you're getting at. And I think theoretically the answer is yes. I mean, we, that is the case. The question then becomes, are we better off with some alternative system that probably also isn't perfect and maybe also underprovides and has all these other inefficiencies we've discussed or with this you know albeit perhaps slightly too small level of of in-stream flows i think at least in the cases i've studied and the different natural resources i've studied you're better off accepting a little bit of free riding than a whole bunch of other messiness from the non-market solution uh, so that's just a maybe a commentary but that's my my take on that. I think the bigger problem than free riding is the case where you're not allowed to engage in market transactions, in conservation transactions. In the oil and gas sector, if I want to go, if I'm a conservationist, I want to go bid on an oil lease and because I you know, really love this particular parcel of land and I don't want to see a, a fracking well go in, I am not allowed to show up to that auction and outbid an oil company. That's illegal. Same with many timber 
sales, same with grazing rights, same as Buzz said in many water rights settings. I think we've got to work to, minim to sort of free up the potential for market transactions, even though we recognize that they may be limited due to the free rider problem. So I think the bigger problem is allowing these non-use rights to happen, as opposed to worrying and wringing our hands about the inefficiently low acquisition of non-use rights through, through the free rider problem. Buzz, maybe, maybe I'll bundle these questions together. So if you have a comment on um, maybe technologies to solve the free rider problem, or at least to address it, as Chris points out, relative to what a little free riding is, you know, is, is, is maybe just what we need to accept. But maybe there's some technologies to address it as well, uh, institutional or um, otherwise. And then if you want to bundle this uh, response with any other thoughts you have about obstacles that prevent markets from developing. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to start out by being negative uh, on this. <laughs> um, I would love to see uh, a lot of voluntary environmental markets out there. Right? I, would, I would love it if we had more organizations like the Nature Conservancy that went to people who wanted to protect uh, various elements of the environment, raised the money, and went out and, uh, uh, and bought the rights necessary to provide that uh, protection. Mm -hmm. But the truth of the matter is I don't see a lot of it. When I look at environmental markets today, I would say somewhere between maybe 80 to 90% of the market activity is driven by the government, not by private individuals going out. Um, so if you think about the various types of environmental markets that exist, I think they fall into three categories. The first category are regulatory markets. That's where the government comes to you and says, we're going to regulate something that you're doing. We're going to tell you, for example, that you can't build on that property because there's a wetland on that property. But we'll let you build there if you go out and buy an equivalent wetland elsewhere <laughs> or pay somebody else to create an equivalent wetland. That's a market that is driven by regulation. If you take that regulation away, that market disappears. And if I look at environmental markets today, I would say the largest set of environmental markets flow from governmental regulations. They are wetland mitigation markets. They're habitat mitigation uh, markets. They're climate mitigation uh, markets. Those are all government uh, driven through regulation. Can, can I can I interject with a, a question? Do you you, you say ninety percent? Are you are you talking about within the U.S. or do you think globally as well? Uh, I haven't. I have not looked as carefully globally uh, as I have domestically. Yeah. But certainly that's true domestically. You know, there, again, there are two types of government-driven markets. One is the regulatory drivers, right? The other is like my Colorado in-stream flow program 
that I mentioned earlier, where the government, rather than regulating, goes out and it pays uh, somebody for some type of environmental uh, benefit. So that's Colorado's in-stream flow program. It's a lot of programs under the, uh, uh, the federal farm bill. Farmers love governmental paid for environmental markets. Right? Um, but again, that's government driven. That's government taking all of our tax dollars and going out and, uh, uh, and buying uh, the environmental benefit. So that's the second type. And then the third type is a purely voluntary market where you have an organization uh, like uh, the Nature Conservancy or the Colorado River Trust uh, going out and actually buying uh, a, uh, a right because they are able to go out uh, and raise the money to do it. Now even there, again, I'm trying to put a little bit of a pessimistic tone on this, trying to get a little bit of an argument. Even there, <laughs> the Nature Conservancy wouldn't raise anywhere near as much money as they raise if it wasn't for the federal tax system that either gives me a deduction for contributing money to the Nature Conservancy, or if I have a piece of property that I contribute to the Nature Conservancy or a water ride I contribute to the Nature Conservancy, gives me a deduction uh, for that. So although I would love all these markets to be purely voluntary, when I look out there, the government has its fingerprints all over it. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and, and that's why I actually don't worry as much about financing. And most of the organizations like the Nature Conservancy, what they worry about is that the governmental financing is going to dry up. They don't worry about whether or not, you know, I might worry about a free rider effect and decide not to well, uh, give to them, because that's not where they get most of their money from. Yeah, certainly the tax code is a is a classic way to try to address this free rider problem and one that's brought with a bunch of other distortions. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you, uh, can, you can make strong arguments for why the government should step in there, uh, but I, you know, about 15 years ago, Gretchen Daly, uh, who's a biologist here, started something called the Natural Capital Project. And the idea behind it is to put a value on natural capital. And her hope had been that if you just show people the value of conservation, they'll go out and voluntarily uh, engage in it. You know, If you have an oil refinery on a coast, you'll voluntarily pay money to help uh, to protect the coastal reef because it reduces storm damage. Uh, if you're a city and you have an upstream watershed, you'll voluntarily pay the people in the watershed to protect the watershed. And there are examples of that, but they're not as robust as, uh, uh, as one would expect. And this is, says nothing bad about markets. Markets are really uh, uh, good, uh, but you know, government plays a role here. Both good and bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, getting your other question, they can also pay, play a negative uh, role uh, in this particular uh, area. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of situations where I know people won't pay voluntarily because they think the government should regulate, and so they'll just hold back and not do anything. Mm -hmm. uh, or, problem with environmental water markets, you have to get the government's approval 
to engage in the water transaction. And that can take months and cost a lot of money. So that deters things. So government is both, it prods them, but it also poses an obstacle. Well, there's, there's situations where there's, um, uh, in fisheries, for example, where there'd be an ITQ system or a cap and trade program. And you know, one of the restrictions on who can own um, quota might be environmental groups can't own them with the purpose of retiring them. And so you have a market. It's a market between fishermen. And other groups are precluded from participating in that market. And I think Chris gave some other examples as well where, you know, in contrast, the sulfur, uh, I'm sorry, the acid rain program, trading program that was part of the 1995 Clean Air Act Amendment did allow environmental groups to buy um, pollution credits and retire them. So you have a market, the government played a role in helping it be created, and then they allowed full participation, and maybe that participation, um, you know, was able to use some market information, market signals to to figure out how much air quality people really demanded. Um, so, Dick, the, yeah. I think you've made it a great. So this is this is really interesting. And if you think about your first type, the regulatory type of market like the sulfur dioxide program. And getting back to your point about additionality, which I think plagues basically every environmental intervention, market or not, um, this is a really interesting case where we can observe the market price in a regulatory market because of the trade of, in this case, sulfur dioxide permits. We observe that market price. If it's bigger than zero, you know it's, it's additional. If it, right? If it was non-additional, if people would have done it anyway, the price would be zero. And so there's something also revealing about from the mar the market price reveals something about how additional or how effective the intervention has been. And you don't typically get that from a regulatory no, no. approach. I have a few more questions, and we may have already addressed at least pieces of them. And then I see there's about 20 minutes left in this session. I want to make sure we have time for audience questions. So let me put them on the screen, and then we can decide uh, what, what issues we don't think we hit yet. Um, so one of them is, where are potential gains from flourishing markets most significant? Are you hopeful that markets can emerge? Um, could we have a market for coal to keep coal in the ground um, as a mitigation uh, technique? There's uh, coal in lots of parts of the developing world that may be extracted, it may be burnt. Um, you know, why not pay the owners of that coal to keep it in the ground? Is that, is that a market that could develop? I wasn't going to talk about coal. I was going to talk about something that I like more, which is uh, marine conservation. Mm. I think there's a huge potential there. Would it be OK to talk about that? And then Buzz can talk about coal. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I have an answer. I haven't, I haven't given guess. It's OK. OK, so, so when, you, when you look out in the ocean, so go stand and you know drive a few miles west and look out in the ocean. and. Almost everything you see, you know, forever, is unowned by anybody. 
and yet we have this kind of global vague notion of 30 by 30, we need to protect 30% of land, 30% of the ocean, for, and there's all these kind of reasons for this conservation rationale for this. And one question that some colleagues and I, some of whom are here, have been thinking about is, is there a market-based approach to achieving that goal in the ocean, even though there are no property rights now? Okay, and so the way we thought about that is, if you take the current d discussion at the United Nations, which is that every country must conserve 30% of its exclusive economic zone, you can calculate the cost of that because you know where they'd put the protection and you know, you know how rich the fishing grounds are in country A compared to country B, for example. It's very costly. And for that reason, it, every time it gets brought up at the UN, it gets shot down at the UN. And that's why we don't, that's why there's almost no conservation out in the ocean. So what we thought about is, well, what if you required that of every country, but you allowed, it, allowed trade? So country A can now pay country B to shoulder more of the, the burden. Country A doesn't have to protect at all as long as they convince country B to protect more. And you can do that where you're trading the right kinds of things like coral reefs for coral reefs, not coral reefs for sandy bottom, for example. And we, what we calculated is that the cost savings from allowing that trade, you get exactly the same environmental outcome, but the cost savings from allowing that trade is a 95% reduction in, in the cost of meeting that target. 95% reduction. So it, the price goes from all, a lot to almost zero. And we think this makes the, the whole enterprise a lot more likely. I mean, it, we're unlikely to get any progress on marine conservation without a market. With a market, it lowers the cost so much that we think it's quite quite feasible. So there's a place that so we have a have huge gains. A 95% reduction in cost, but 95% I think was the number of our markets in the US are because of government regulations. So we've got a, a clustering at the extremes. 95%. Um, Buzz, do you have do you have any thoughts on if if a coal market uh, could work? I don't see any reason why you couldn't have uh, a uh, a coal market. Um, you know, coal is 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 a substance that if you own the mineral right, uh, you control whether or not it's ever going to be mined. Uh, so I think you could uh, uh, you could do it. Um, is there not already a coal market? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> there, yeah? Is there a coal market? <laughs> Yeah, let's um, let's yeah, let's wrap up and then we'll we'll yeah. transition to we'll transition to questions. I have one. Um, we'll we'll come back we'll come yeah. back to you in just a moment. Um, it sounds like you have something to say about coal, um, <laughs> uh, which Chris avoided. Uh, so so we'll we'll get it out there. Um, I I think I think we're good. I think we've covered we've covered enough ground. And let's let's go to questions or comments, yeah. and we can start with yeah. you. Thank you so much for your uh, insights. Uh, my name is Elisa Kleinhuis. 
Um, so I found it very inspiring to hear um, about uh, the importance of uh, markets and that oftentimes markets are uh, brought to life actually by regulations. And I was just talking to uh, the gentleman from the Wall Street Journal about a paper that I wrote called The Great Carbon Arbitrage where we basically do exactly the thing along the lines of what you suggest. We estimate globally how much would be needed to pay coal communities to keep coal in the ground and it's actually much less than you would expect. It's around 50 billion to, uh, in present value terms to pay out the coal owners, uh, around 7 trillion for retraining costs, and uh, billion, sorry, and around um, I think 275 uh, billion uh, for um, compensating coal uh, workers. Um, and what we essentially argue is paying uh, coal communities to keep the coal in the ground, and also paying for the capital expenditures to replace coal with renewables, it's really a cohesion bargain. The costs of doing that is much smaller than the benefits of avoided emissions. Um, and so it would make sense to provide climate finance to do this. And specifically, you want to make as much as possible use of uh, uh, markets, right? So the governments only come in to de-risk the investments in renewables and to pay out the coal owners. Um, and what is beautiful uh, is that after my paper came out, two deals have been struck that are exactly getting the brush, uh, broad brushstrokes right of what we propose, which is one, the Indonesia deal that has been struck during G20 mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, COP27 meeting, uh, where essentially the G7 countries via the Asian Multilateral Development Bank <laughs> provide the financing to allow uh, uh, capital markets to come in. So a lot of the banks from the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero are funding the rest. And that financing is offered for renewables, conditional uh, on the commitment to uh, uh, retire coal plants early and also to compensate for the opportunity cost of coal, so basically to pay the coal communities. And then more recently, uh, on December 14th, uh, another deal was struck with Vietnam. So what we argue is that actually you want to strike more of these uh, deals of the coalitions of the willing, the self-interested willing, where you pay coal communities to keep the coal in the ground uh, so that you can add up to the global deal uh, to get rid of coal. So uh, anyway, I just wanted to share uh, an answer to your question on, on coal. Well, there, there's, there's, there's some attempt domestically here. There's um, the Crow Indian Reservation in Montana has one of the best uh, endowments of coal um, in, in the entire US. And much of it hasn't been used because of stranglehold federal regulations that have basically made it difficult for the Crow to use their endowment for you know, 100 years. Um, and so now there's talk of, you know, could, could the tribe sell its coal rights to keep it in the ground? What would that market look like? Who are the buyers, um, you know, and how much would they pay? Um, so there's a domestic example of that as well. Akshay on the back. Uh, Akshay? Hi, really interesting discussion. Uh, I was going to follow up on the coal. So coal supply in India, for example, is state-owned. So using that as a springboard, I was going to ask, what are the role of institutions in developing countries in perhaps these markets forming or not forming? For example, in India, it, you know, because it's state-owned, it might be tougher to institute that type of market. So thinking about you know the institutions in these developing countries and how that plays a role in whether markets develop was my question. Yeah, I'll start. That's a really interesting point, and I think a rich, 
very rich vein, vein to mine. Um, but, and I think it's true in developing countries, it's also true in this country that, as we were talking about earlier, sort of who owns what and what they are permitted to transact over. Is it even possible to, once you own it, to transact to not use it? It seems crazy that that wouldn't be the case, but for most natural resources, that is the case, that you cannot transact to not use it, or you're forbidden from transacting to not use it. But the ownership question to begin with is an interesting one. So I think it's true at kind of any scale. It's a really yeah. great, great point. I mean, I'll chime in just for a moment. I don't know about um, Vietnam, and I don't know about Indonesia. I think most in most places in the world, government claims ownership over subsurface resources. The US is very unique where uh, there can be, you know, the, the subsurface estate is owned by the surface owner typically, um, with some some exceptions. And so you you can have, you know, private contracts to pay somebody on private land in the US to not use their coal, but on public land these are disallowed. You can't have you can't have contracts to not use a resource. And so I don't know how that works in other parts of the world where the government owns the subsurface. Like can you credibly contract with them to keep the coal in the ground and you know uh, you know the government could just change its mind and you know in a future period which would make those contracts not very reliable. Yeah, I'll just you know, agree with everything that uh, was just said. I guess the only other thing I would add is that in those situations where governments own resources, they have historically tended to um, be reticent uh, to put them aside, right? To agree not to develop them. Because in addition to everything else, if you're the bureaucrat in charge of that particular resource, uh, you're actually going to probably have a bigger budget uh, and be more highly regarded if you're out developing it and bringing in money over time than if you've sold it to just keep it in the ground or keep it wherever it was. Let's say way in the back and then Dan, I'll come to you next. Yeah, Chris Chidzi, I want to um, get back to your additionality question, the part of number three, because I think in this coal question, in contrast to SO2, um, it, it's really different. As I understand it, the regulation was of the entire airshed for SO2. So once you trade it, that the additionality problem, as you said, goes away. I don't see that happening with coal yeah. that's privately traded rights to take them out of use. Yeah. Yeah. And I think without talking about that, there's kind of a, a, a apples and oranges situation. I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it's both additionality and leakage. So the additionality problem in the coal mm -hmm. example would be that the crow weren't going to use the, weren't going to burn the coal anyway, would be the cynical view there. And the leakage version of that would be you pay the crow to not use the coal, a new coal mine pops up somewhere else where there's not a contract. So I think both of those are concerns. I'm not saying there are I think there are ways to try to overcome those concerns, but I, if I'm understanding you right, I, I agree with that. I, I, I agree with one tiny footnote, which is, you know, the, the, the world supply of coal is fixed. Um, and if you did pursue the, 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 the endowments that were most likely to be extracted and worked your way down, you, you could make a dent. Um, Dan. 
So you both made mention of, of satellites and information and how that could really turn loose these opportunities. It made me think, is the reduction of uncertainty a necessary condition for markets to form and function? So, or are there case study examples where um, you know, private entities have succeeded in contracting on expectations and sort of recognize the underlying uncertainty? And I'm specifically thinking about, say, ambient water quality. I mean, what prevents people from contracting at the local level with local landowners to undertake activities that would improve local ambient water quality. And I think one of the things that prevents that is the uncertainty between the link and changes in land uses and the outcomes in the water quality sphere. Uh, so what do you guys think about this uncertainty question? Do we need to reduce it before this works? So I, again, would probably differentiate the type of market. So if you're talking about a regulatory driven market, which is probably what we're talking about if we're talking about water quality, then the uncertainty issue is significant uh, because the government's highly unlikely to allow a factory, for example, to emit more of a particular pollutant uh, in return for paying a farmer maybe to reduce the pollution if it doesn't really know how much pollution reduction it's going to get from the farmer. So in that type of setting, the government is going to insist uh, on a fairly high degree of exactitude. Uh, on the other hand, if we're talking about a, a more voluntary market where the Nature Conservancy comes in, or Trout Unlimited, or something of that nature to buy a water right, there's frequently a lot of uncertainty there over exactly what you're going to get with a particular water right. But they're willing to take the uh, the risk. They go in there with the best science. Uh, they think they're going to probably get a benefit. They don't know for sure, but they're willing to take that chance. I, I would just add one thing. And for, it's just a pleasure to be here with such great thinkers and great scholars. I don't know how we got chosen to be up here. But Dan, you could just as easily be sitting in this seat. I think. Un in conditions where we're, where we're very uncertain, we're often contracting over proxies. We're contracting over something that is kind of loosely related to the thing we care about, but it isn't exactly the thing we care about. Like sometimes we regulate over inputs, for example, or even have markets over inputs instead of outputs. And I guess my sense is the more we're able to observe things in real time at a low cost, the more we can contract over the thing we actually care about. And that's going to improve efficiency and improve, you know, it's going to un basically unleash wealth, if I can say it that way, because you can now get a much more precise answer about what you're contracting over. And, and I would just add, um, if it's your money at stake and you're the buyer of this service, you're incentivized to resolve that uncertainty. So it's amplifying Buzz's point. Whereas if it's a government entity that's regulating some activity, the incentives could look very different. Uh, you, you know, you could be angling for votes, for example. And so the uncertainty plays in your favor. I saw I saw John Karpoff and oh Kyle. <laughs> So do you oh, mind if I, oh. I just wanted to, uh, thanks, I fully agree with your latest point that uh, it's important to measure, to contract better. I just wanted to briefly react to the discussion on how to ensure uh, that you have an additionality uh, and that you avoid carbon leakage with coal. So I think what the innovation is of these Indonesian and Vietnam deals is that actually the financing for renewables is offered conditional on the commitment to phase at coal. So what does that mean? It means that uh, 
renewables could be phased in concurrently with the phase out of coal, such that the energy demand is simply replaced from coal. It can now be met with renewables. So you get much less carbon leakage. And this is really important because it means that, therefore, you don't need a global agreement. You can actually move by blocks. And that is the critical difference in comparison with carbon taxation, because then, if you just do it in one country, you get carbon leakage. And then on the point of additionality, um, as you said, the coal reserves are lim limited, right? So even if you would pay out all the coal reserves to keep it in the ground, e even if it otherwise would not have been used, we show in, for example, our paper that the cost of doing it is so much smaller than the benefits that can be achieved. So, so you can, you know, kind of in that way avoid that additionality concern. So thanks. Uh, just to comment that uh, it, it seems obvious in, in retrospect, but I don't think anybody's emphasized it. And that is, you know, this question of, of you know, why why do we have these perverse uh, mandates instead of more markets has bedeviled economists and natural resource scientists forever. And uh, a huge part of the problem is uh, is that mandates come with a lot of rents for. Uh, mm -hmm. pol politically influential parties, and and so that's that's a, a big part of this uh, issue. You know, for example, you know, my background is in the fisheries, so like Gary Leibcap, Ron Johnson showed that this was a problem that prevented better regulations in the Gulf shrimp fishery. My own work is with the Alaska salmon fisheries, um, and you know th these really strange mandates, such as on vessel length, uh, the fact that you can only go fishing on Tuesday afternoon. Uh, you know, strange things uh, can be well well understood by uh, the the rents that accrue to those who benefit from them, um, which raises a corollary, which is that uh, opportunities for markets seem to emerge in a lot of these areas, a lot of fisheries, when the existing mandate-based system uh, basically breaks down, when things get really bad. The fishery, for example, starts to crash. Mm -hmm. And so the value of the rents decrease enough that you can overcome that political inertia. I, I, I see Kyle had raised his hand. And I, I'll give you the last question, if, if you still have it, or comment. Sure, very quickly. Um, just a caveat, Chris's earlier point about how with markets the price represents the fact that it is additional, he's right, but with the caveat that only in the case with a cap and trade system, not with a voluntary offset market where yeah. the price of the offset is actually dictated by demand coming from the cap sector. So that's related to Buzz's point that actually you do need government involvement in many of these settings because the government does provide, in that case, a cap and a demand for uh, permits. The second thing is uh, actually related to this point about rents. There was an earlier point about how markets have the potential for redistribution because of the allocation of rights. And I want to take Chris's point about kind of a level playing field about comparing mandates and markets seriously because the reality is that how those allocations are distributed is also subject to rent seeking. And so it is true that ideally we would like to think of markets and the initial allocation of rights as helping to deal with redistributive objectives, but that is also subject to the same rent seeking kind of uh, characteristics that we worry about in other regulatory systems. Yeah. 100% agree. Yeah.
Well, thanks to everyone for, for your comments. And uh, we'll take a, I think, 15-minute break. And we will be back to talk about uh, energy markets, I believe. Great. Thank you.